0: Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad in Shabbat Shalom. I thank you for joining us this Sabbath. We're excited here because we get to go to Sukkot tomorrow. Praise Yahuwah. All of you that are traveling from out of state, even out of country to join us, we are super, super excited. I want to thank you all here and our donors, you out there that support this ministry. Without you, none of this would be possible. It is truly an awe-inspiring event, preparing for the feasts. It's been overwhelming, but in a really blessed way, in a really blessed way. Now remember, if you like this video, subscribe to our channel. It does make a difference. Love the thumbs up. If you give us thumbs up, it really helps too. And again, Go into the comments section and you in the live chat. Enjoy the community. We're really happy that you're joining us. And we're really happy that people are making connections and joining together here at Torah to the Tribes on this channel. So anyway, what a blessing to be able to jump into a teaching today. And remember, you can always go to, Torah to the tribes.com Forward slash connect And join us on our covenant calendar group, our Shabbat group, and our Torah Youth Worldwide group. A lot of people have been really interested, because of the past, teaching liars, lunatics, and demons about the, colin- uh, the covenant calendar. So that's a great group to join where a lot of your questions can really be cleared up in just a matter of moments. So, without any further ado, I have a new teaching right before Shabbat, right before the feasts, I should say. It is entitled Rambam Rashi, Angels and Calves. Rambam Rashi, Angels and Calves. Now, of course, this teaching comes on the heels of liars lunatics, and demons, where I unraveled the benighted idea of equating the Dead Sea Scrolls, Enoch, and Jubilees with authoritative scripture. Now, I thought, well, what better opportunity to turn my hand to quoting the rabbis right on the heel of that to illustrate a point I want to illustrate a point, a point that a few dim-witted peasants failed to grasp out there, that being it's okay to read history, it's okay to read fantasy, it's okay to read folklore, to even bring it into studious circles as Paul and the prophets did alike. But to take a giant bounding leap off a cliff and claim it as authoritative scripture given by inspiration of Elohim, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness is both foolhardy at best and devilish at worst to say the least. So what i wanted to do this shabbat before we prepare for the feast as we prepare for the feast of tabernacles is to prepare our hearts and to also bring an answer to a question that many have posed regarding the malchitzed priesthood so today i want to demonstrate how i use uninspired sources yes Matthew uses uninspired sources. Now, the trolls are going to have a field day with this because this is coming on the heels of junk in Jubilees, Eros and Enoch. And now look at Nolan. He's quoting the rabbis. Yes, he is. Because even Nolan uses uninspired sources. And this is the point that some people failed to grasp. It's okay. To use uninspired sources for color and shade. I use uninspired sources for color and shade in my studies that then leads me to plunge, to dive into the scriptural record where I will find solace. Where I will find solace because in the scriptural record alone, Is where I can find clarity in form of inspiration, profitable doctrine, and instruction for righteousness. But I'm not opposed to a little bit of color and a little bit of shade, but the color and shade always drives me into the scriptural record where I find the authority. That is what I am trying to communicate. Matthew isn't opposed to color and shade, but the color and shade always leads me into the authority of the 66 books where I will find the profitable doctrine, be inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to disseminate instruction for righteousness. That is what many out there Maybe some of you in here, but definitely some of those dim-witted peasants that like to troll us failed to comprehend. So, without further ado, let me trigger some of you, because I am now going to be talking about the rabbis, Rambam and Rashi, and now I realize that this will trigger some of the foxes that have tried to sneak in and spoil the vines. Because you guys out there and you in here that love the Melchizedek message, that understand the Melchizedek anointing, are the true vines. You're the true vines and you're producing tender grapes. And I can't help it but I just love messing with the foxes for you all to see. It's my one delinquent delight, and it is what it is. I'm just saying, it is my one delinquent delight. I love messing with the foxes for you all to see. So trigger alert, little foxes. Rambam and Rashi, here we come. You see, there is an age-old dispute between Rashi and Rambam on the question of whether the command concerning the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, came before the sin of the golden calf or only in its aftermath. This question still to this day, remains unresolved within Judaism. It remains unresolved to this day within Judaism. Each side can adduce proof for its position, supposedly from the biblical text. And each side can reconcile those verses that at first glance may appear to contradict it. But the problem is, people become entrenched, locked, and stuck. But to me, I like to point that out. And because I point it out and say, look, there are different approaches, even within the rabbinical sources of when the tabernacle was built, that it came after the sin of the golden calf. In fact, it is in dispute. It's not just a lockdown case. that The golden calf incident, according to Rashi, resulted in the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a result, a consequence of the sin of the golden calf. Now, of course, Rambam, he totally totally disagrees. But this is a debate that has gone on for millennia. But when I point it out, when I point it out, I get hated. Because the status quo is to go along with the Messianic effect. But I like to point out flaws And I like to have discussion. Today, I would like to say the solution to the dispute can be resolved by looking in the scriptural record. Because we have more to look at than the unregenerate Jew. What do I mean? What do you mean, Matthew? The New Testament clears up disputes the unbelieving Jews had on the Torah. Yes, it does. And many will say, well, I want to side with the unbelieving Jew rather than the new Jew speaking to you through the book of Hebrews. Well, why would you want to do that? (laughs) Hebrews 7.11 if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood for under it the people receive the law. What? What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Ahron? For the priesthood being changed there is made a necessity, a change also of the law. The New Testament clears up a Judaic dispute, a dispute that you cannot deny exists. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up to try and advance the, the Melchizedek message. I am bringing forth truth historically, shade and color, from the rabbis, but we will not form our doctrine from shade and color. The shade and color, whatever it may be, will drive me to plunge off the cliff into the scriptural record. And that was my whole point in the presentation of Liar's lunatics and demons and I even jumped off on a side note and went into LNG white and people were hating on me or loving it there was no middle ground because the color and shade of the great controversy has become too many people's scriptural record it's color and shade But people count the great great controversy in the writings of Ellen G. White on par with scripture. Just as the Jews count the writings of Rambam and Rashi on par with scripture. Just as many today have been struggling with what I've been trying to communicate, they count Jubilees and Enoch on par with scripture. And I drew a line in the sand and it offended many of you. I'm glad. Because you can unsubscribe because we'd rather you leave and depart the way you're going because in the place of the one that leaves, ten will come back. Multiplicity of harvest is what we're seeing. So there's a division of the flock. And that's okay when it comes to bringing people into the full council of Elohim. Sometimes you have to cast out... Knock down so that you can build up. And it is only the inspired word that's going to build up. But I am not opposed to shade and color, but shade and color is what it is. Rambam, Rashi's Jubilees, Enoch, LNG, White. It will always force me to go into the scriptural record. So today, I will prove my point because I bring you shall, um, color and shade that there is an age old dispute. Rashi believes that the construction and the commandment for the building of the tabernacle was only in response to the golden calf. Rambam totally disagrees. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Hebrews 7 the New Testament, Brit Hadashah, I believe, clears up this Judaic dispute. Rashi believed the tabernacle command was the change given in response to the golden calf. And the Torah being chronological thematically, but it being a in the giving of mitzvot commandments records that fact. This was Rashi's position. Rambam disputed this as most Messianics do today. They choose to side with unregenerate Jews instead of the Hebrew revelation that solves the dispute. And I thought it was called Hebrew roots, not siding with Judaic disputes. But that seems to be what most want to do because Judaism has a lot of form that people like to function within. You see? Rabbis aside, I want to try and show you one of many reasons why I believe through Scripture why the tabernacle was built after the incident of the golden calf. Because what we can see when we read the Bible, even in the order found in the Torah, we can see that the incident of the golden calf is recorded in chapter 32 of Shemot Exodus. But the actual construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, is described later in chapters 35 to 40. Why? Why is the actual construction not described until chapters 35 to 40? Now Moshe was commanded regarding the tabernacle only on his ninth ascent. And Rashi understood the differences in the ascents that Moses made up and down the mountain. Many today read the whole narrative and they have no idea what ascent the Torah is talking about in the record of Moses. And that's the big problem is grouping all of the ascents into one. If you don't understand how many times Moses has gone up the mountain, which was ten times, if you think it's the fourth time when it's really the seventh, you're gonna miss a whole lot and start to string a fabricated chronology together. So, Rashi understood that there was a distinction in ascents. Ascents, ascending the mountain. That's key. Because Moshe was commanded regarding the tabernacle only on his ninth ascent to the mountain, only in the wake of the sin of the golden calf. According to Rashi, there is a connection between the golden calf and the need for a tabernacle. I believe that's true. Now, the trolls out there are going to say, see, Matthew's just following the rabbis. Matthew's going to delve into the scriptural record. Now, if, as I believe, the command to build the tabernacle, chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus, that's where the command to build the tabernacle was, was also issued only after the incident of the golden calf, which was chapter 32. How could I show you that through Scripture? Because if I am suggesting that is true, then I would be siding with Rashi that Torah is chronological in its narrative. First there was Abraham, then there was Isaac, then there was Jacob. But in the giving of mitzvot, the commandment giving, that is achronological, meaning it is thematic. When... The Torah is speaking about manna, say in Exodus 16. It's going to introduce commandments that are thematically connected to manna. Case in point, in Exodus chapter 16, it says, Moshe, Moshe laid up the manna beside the ark of the testimony. Because the whole theme of Exodus 16 is manna. But hang on a minute. How could he lay up manna beside the Ark of the Testimony? Because the Ark of the Testimony, in a chronological way, was not even built, wasn't even conceptualized until when? Exodus chapter 25. So this proves a chronology, a chronology. And now we've got some people, I'm unsubscribing, he's speaking in tongues. No, he wasn't, he was just tongue-tied. But again, you've got people that literally will bounce because of such silly, silly divisional things. I hope we get past the division because Yahweh wants to come together. But people too easily give up flock because of a failure of an individual. I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. It's called humanity. So, all that to say this. I believe the command to build the tabernacle, chapters 25 to 31, was also issued only after the incident of the golden calf. And I want to show you one, just one of the reasons why I believe that. I already kind of shared one about the manner of why I believe that, but I want to show you another one. So this is where I make my point because I like making points. My wife would tell you that all the why do you always have to drive home your point? And my children would agree to. That's just the way I'm wired, okay? I get great jollification Reading the rabbis, I get great jollification. Reading Jubilees and Enoch, I get great jollification. Seeing the junk in Jubilees and the errors in Enoch, you're certainly going to get ideas. You're cert- some of them are going to be strange. You're certainly going to get a glimpse into something that you've never seen before when you read these sources. But you have to establish, listen, in all seriousness, I'm having fun. I'm so excited about Sukkot tomorrow that I thought I'd have a... For oh, yeah, it's Monday for everybody else, my <laughs> wife. We're getting early because we're preparing. Don't show up tomorrow. Show up on Monday. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, honey. But in all seriousness, you have to establish your form in authoritative scripture given by inspiration of Elohim for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, which is found in the 66. The problems that we've had and some of you out there commenting online is that you get caught up in the shade and the color and you can't differentiate between shade and color and authoritative scripture. And when I call it out, I'm hated, but in reality, it's love. You see, that's what people don't get. If you remember when I started the teaching, it was birthed out of a real experience in my life. It was birthed out of a pure place. Yes, I get a little saucy, but you have to understand from my position that I'm in, to see people being caught up in error and not getting the inspiration that they could be having because they become so intellectualized and locked down, who would not want to help somebody come unlocked from that kind of thinking? So look, in all seriousness, if you can't build it in the 66. You've been hacked and your inspiration lacks. That's the reality. Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. Let's turn there together. Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. I want to explain to you why I believe that the construction of the tabernacle, the command of the tabernacle is only a response to the sin of the golden calf. Meaning, if there had been no sin of the golden calf, there would have been no earthly tabernacle constructed. Exodus chapter 20 verse 19, let's turn there together. We're going to look at... The altar of earth, the earthen altar. This, of course, is in the book of the covenant. And Yahweh said to Moshe, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Number one, where did Yahweh speak? from the Shamaim from heaven. You shall not make with me, number two, gods of silver and gods of gold. You shall not make to you. Number three, An altar of earth you shall make to me, and you shall sacrifice thereon your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and I will bless you. Has everybody found that scripture? Did you find it? What's that? You didn't bring your glass? How dare you? dare you (laughs) not bring your spectacles. Did you find it? Exodus what? Exodus chapter 20 verse 19. Oh, it didn't populate. That was my Bible software program. Where are we? 22. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I did. That was a total um, Bible software error. It wasn't. It was a human error. All right. So it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. And Yahweh said to Moshe, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I talk with you from heaven. Number one and you shall not make for me gods of silver or gods of gold. The Hebrew word there is Elohim, and Elohim is a disembodied spirit, okay? You shall not make any form of a disembodied spirit for me in gods of silver or gold. Very clear. I'm going to prove to you, I hope, why, I don't need to prove anything to you, I will demonstrate to you why I am so sure that the tabernacle was built in response to the golden calf. Based upon this and numerous other texts, but this is one that I like to use. You shall not make to you. An altar of earth you shall make to me, and you shall sacrifice there on your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. So Yahuwah right here, he gives instructions for his building, doesn't he? Does anybody see silver sockets? Any silver sockets? Do we see any, sil- any building boards? Do we see any building boards? No building boards? How many, How about fillets of silver? Not fillets of fish. I'm talking fillets of silver. There's none, is there? Okay, fillets of silver, building boards, and silver sockets, they were a response to the golden calf, the earthly tabernacle. But Yahuwah is now telling you how to build his dwelling place. And where, number one, where does Yahuwah dwell? Yahuwah's dwelling place is in heaven, number one. We see that in the text. Number two, this is very important, and this is what I'm going to focus on, is number two. You must not, absolutely must not, you must not make an accompaniment for Yahuwah in the form out of gold or silver, must you? You must not make an accompaniment for Yahuwah out of gold or silver, put it into manner of form. This is most important. And number three, the sole command to build something relates to an earthen altar. That's where Yahuwah's name is mentioned. My focus is going to be on number two. Number two, you must not make an accompaniment for Yahuwah in form out of gold or silver. Question. Were not the cherubim, the cherubim, made in form out of gold. Hmm. Now, this is a problem that we need to address in our movement, whatever you want to call it is. A lot of people troll us, hate us, because they're unable to connect the dots. I've just asked a very important question, connect the dots. But you see, that takes reason, logic, and diving into the scriptural record. Yahuwah right here in the construction of the earthly altar, the earthen mound, The habitation of Yahuwah in heaven gives a strict prohibition against making Elohim disembodied spirits in the form of gold and silver. Yet, we know for a surety in the tabernacle there were disembodied spirits, Elohim, Cherubim, cherubim formed out of gold. So the deduction is, what? Something must have changed for Yahweh to allow that command to be later added, because it's strictly prohibited here. Is Yahweh a liar? Heaven forbid. Did something change. According to the writer of the book of Hebrews, yes, I'll demonstrate to you what that change is. The cherubim, the cherubim in the tabernacle were made in the form of the heavenly gods, creatures of gold, were they not? Which is in a strict prohibition here in our text. Exodus chapter 20 Verses 22 onward shows us it is prohibited to make the ark and the cherubim the gods of gold. Doesn't it? Elohim, a disembodied spirit of which the cherubim on the kaporim, the ark, are. So you can't talk about a command to build the tabernacle, the mishkan here, can you? You certainly can't. Because the ark and the cherubim are central to the earthly tabernacle, are they not? They are central to the earthly tabernacle, of which it is prohibited here. Something must have changed. Something must have happened that Yahweh then needed to clarify. He must have then seen something so grievous, so heinous, that Israel misconstrued something that he then had to make a change in the Torah and literally spell it out to them so that they wouldn't make that mistake again. That is what I want to present to you today. This is why there's an earthen altar for the purpose of peace offerings and burnt offerings where the name of Yahuwah will be mentioned. There's only two sacrifices, too under the Zedek administration. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Burnt means the sin is fully consumed into the covenant. When you're in the covenant The sin is fully consumed. Abraham laid open the pieces, the burning torch and the fire and the smoke in the oven. The sin is fully consumed into the covenant and fully administered under the said covenant. Genesis 15, fire between the pieces. You get burnt and then you get peace in the covenant. Why does the book of the covenant Torah mention the earth and altar and not the rest of the tabernacle? Yahweh's glory was always supposed to remain where? Where was Yahweh's glory supposed to remain? In the Sharmayim, in the heavens. Because in the heavens is where he would speak to his kingdom and priests whose job was to touch the earth and minister on the earth to humanity. And as a kingdom of priests under the order of Melchizedek, they were fully empowered to do that. But something went wrong. The command regarding the tabernacle I believe is demonstrated here to be a change in Yahweh's governance of Israel in the wake of the sin of the golden calf. The golden calf, we have understood it. Myself in the past also, when they built that golden calf, even Christian commentators and Judaic commentators will tell you that it was something that they picked up in Egypt. They built what? Apis, the fertility god, right? The fertility calf that the Egyptians worshipped. But if we examine it, was there something else that was going on there? I believe that there was. The golden calf may not have been. In fact, I do not think it was the Apis fertility bull of the Egyptians. And this is my point. What they built... What Israel built and the sin of the golden calf was Israel trying to bring form to the heavenly vision of Yahuwah. It wasn't just outright idol worship. They weren't just outright worshiping idols, but they were trying to bring form to the heavenly vision. They were trying to put manner and form where Yahuwah prohibited manner and form because He appeared, did He not, in Exodus 24, in the heavenly vision. But it was not manner and form. It was upon a sapphire stone as the 70 elders went up the mountain. Israel was rather trying to attempt to portray characters found in the heavenly chariot. Israel was trying to bring manner of form to characters that was found in the heavenly chariot which were revealed to the people who assembled right there at Mount Sinai. Now later in Ezekiel, in the 13th scroll, which appears in the Masoretic text as chapter 1, verse 6, it is written, listen, This is Ezekiel's vision, just like the elders had at Mount Sinai, of four faces, and every one of them had four wings, their feet were straight, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12 it is written, and Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the voice of words, but you saw no form. Only a voice. Take you therefore good heed to yourselves, for you soon saw no manner of form on the day that Yahuwah spoke to you in Chorev, out of the midst of the fire. This is key. Lest you deal corruptly And you make yourself a graven image. Is is Yahuwah omniscient, omnipotent, knowing all things? Of course. Even the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flies in the heaven, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth but now we go forward to first chronicles chapter 28 verse 18 where it is written and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of Yahweh this is a direct prohibition back in exodus chapter 20 right a direct prohibition was it chapter 20 got me confused Yes, 20, 22. Thank you. I hope you're tracking with me because what I'm trying to present to you is that the tabernacle is a response to the golden calf because Yahuwah had to make it clear. He had to make it clear to Israel that the kavod, the glory of Yahuwah, didn't rest on the cherubim. It didn't rest on the calves of gold, did it? Did Yahweh's kavod rest in form and manner of form upon the calves, the golden cherubim, or was it in the space in between which had no manner of form? Yahuwah responded with the building of the tabernacle. It was a response to the sin of the golden calf because he had to clearly correct Israel, that they were trying to put form to the heavenly vision. So therefore, he built the tabernacle. He put in the golden cherubim, which was an earlier prohibition to demonstrate that my kavod, my glory doesn't actually rest in form and manner of form on the cherubim. It is in the place in between. He had to communicate to them that because the sin of the golden calf is that they built a form to what Ezekiel says in the 13th scroll in the first chapter of his vision. The tabernacle is surely a response to the golden calf. Yahweh had to make it clear to Israel that the glory didn't rest on the cherubim, on the calves of gold. He had to spell it out to them. His glory was to rest in heaven where he could speak to man and his name would be mentioned on the earth. We are living in this day and age where we are mentioning his name no longer bringing it to vanity by saying the lord and god we're pronouncing and proclaiming the name of yahweh to the nations we're understanding the importance of the malchizedek anointing and we understand the absolute deprivation that was caused by the golden calf and the imposition of the book of the law only after the golden calf did yah have to spell it out to Israel that His glory was resting in the place in between where there was no manner of form. That's a lot to ponder, but it's powerful. Let's go back into the scriptural record, Bar Midbar, Numbers, chapter 7, verse 89. And when Moshe went into the tent of meeting that he might speak with him. Then he heard the voice speaking to him from above the ark cover that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim and he spoke unto him. It wasn't on the cherubim. It was in between where there was no manner and no form. The voice of Yahweh came from the empty space. The voice of Yahweh came from the empty space between the two cherubim above the ark, a place where there was no manner of form, but only the cherubim. Now, from Ezekiel, we know the cherubim were similar to calves, were they not? They were similar to calves. The Torah, here's the crux the Torah changed its instruction in the wake of the incident involving the golden calf in order to clarify who is truly the Elohim of Israel. That's what all of this is about. Who is truly the Elohim of Israel? We're coming up to Sukkot. It's one of the three pilgrimage feasts that are mentioned right within the text predating the construction of the tabernacle. Why? Why are the three pilgrimage feasts so important? I want you to look at the shift in the language between the instruction now of the three pilgrimage feasts. Because there was instruction regarding the three pilgrimage feasts before the sin of the golden calf. And then there is instruction regarding the three pilgrimage feasts after the sin of the golden calf. I want to see if you can catch the change. Because remember my statement, the Torah changed its instructions in the wake of the incident involving the golden calf in order to clarify who the Elohim of Israel. Exodus chapter 23, verse 17. This is the instruction of the three pilgrimage feasts before the sin of the golden calf. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before Yahuwah Elohim. Now look at the instruction regarding the three pilgrimage feasts and see if you can catch the change, the shift in language after the golden calf. Exodus chapter 34, Shemot 34, verse 23. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before Yahuwah Elohim. The Elohim of Israel. I made it obvious for you two words are added. Elohim Israel. Why? The wording change brings to mind the vision that led to the golden calf debacle. The wording change brings to mind the vision that led to the golden calf debacle. Exodus chapter 24 verse 10 And they saw the Elohim of Israel, and there was under his feet the like of a paved work of sapphire stone. This is the same statement, or should I say misstatement, they made regarding the golden calf. Exactly. Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. And they said, This is your... Elohim, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you really think that they thought the Apis fertility bull brought them out of the land of Egypt? No. They were trying to put manner of form to the earth, the heavenly vision of Exodus 24. They were trying to put manner of form in the form of gold in violation to the earth and mound instruction they were trying to bring manner of form to the heavenly visions and they said, this is your Elohim, the Elohim of Israel. Those two key words they tried to bring manner of form to. Israel at the foot of the mountain were trying to bring manner and form to the heavenly vision of Yahweh, the heavenly chariot out of the midst of the fire and remember I mean, do you remember Aaron's response? Is just, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, it's just like his response is shocking. It's like, oh, um, yeah, so the <laughs> they, 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 they gave me this gold, right? I'm sounding like some New York mobster because that's what Aaron, re- he sounded like that. He said, gave me this gold and um, uh, <laughs> I kind of cast it into the fire. And, uh, <laughs> I think I'll pop this car. I mean, when you read that, you're like, "What, Aaron? Really? You try, you're trying this on Moshe? You're trying this on Moshe Rabbeinu? I mean, you really? I mean, maybe if you tried this on her, but Moshe? He's not going to fall for this." So they gave me this gold, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. <laughs> right? Now, an interesting side note for you. An an interesting side note for you, though. We are coming up to the three pilgrimage feasts. And on the three pilgrimage feasts, do you know what they would do in ancient Israel? On the three pilgrimage feasts, they would open up the curtain in order to allow the people to see the cherubim to clarify for them that the kavod, the glory, rests in a place where there is no manner of form, and that the cherubim are merely a frame. And this was the whole golden calf debacle, which was why the tabernacle was constructed Because Yahweh had to spell it out to them. Which is why there was a change in the Torah. There is a strict prohibition against making cherubim. Yet, the whole point of the earthly tabernacle is the cherubim. Why? To communicate that the kavod is not in manner of form, but it dwells in the space between manner of form. And Israel, if you can get this, then you will come to know my son. Because Yahweh's plan of redemption is his kavod, his glory, coming down to us in manner of form, But do not confuse it with synchronicity or syncretism of the children of Israel at the golden calf. The purpose of the tabernacle was to present a frame until the builder and framer of our faith came and presented his tabernacle as a sacrifice to us all. Hebrews 8.1. We have such a common Haggadol, a high priest, who was set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true Mishkan, the true tabernacle which the master pitched, not man. So the purpose of the three pilgrimage feasts to leave your syncretism behind. Leave your sacred cows behind. Leave the manner and form of your religion behind. Don't hold on to your form of godliness anymore denying the power of the Malchizedek anointing. It's time for us all to come clean and clear to the three pilgrimage feasts to worship the Elohim of Israel free of form, free of clutter, free of culture, and free of your syncretism and compromise. Why people would get so upset when I call out the compromise, I still don't understand. That's because shade and color to me always causes me to dive headfold into authoritative scripture. But I fear too many people have become miscolored and shaded in the darkness of their wicked imaginations that they can no longer see what is authoritative scripture and what is shade and color alone. The Malkizotic priesthood is all about the life of the saints before the golden calf debacle. It's covenant fidelity and Yahushua has brought us into that new covenant under his Malchizedek administration. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, is just one of the many reasons why I believe, as Rashi the rabbi did shade and color, to why I believe that the tabernacle was built purely in response to the golden calf buckle. Questions? Comments? Anybody? Online, we may have some. We have, let's see here. Oh, yes, yes. All right. Let's go All on right. the main camera so I can sit down and have a little chat here.
1: All right, we've got an online question here. The, the, the person is asking, why did they change Passover from a local feast to a pilgrimage feast? Said
0: it was a <laughs> why did they change Passover from, do you want to answer that? Yeah, I love it, somebody else. I
2: can try. Get, is this heard
0: is it on yeah. okay
2: um, I believe that as the as things shifted and the um, people started to go farther they went to Jerusalem tr- staying doing the Passover at their home before they got to Jerusalem didn't work so well so they started integrating it with a temple service with the feast of tat um, on love and bread. That's my thought.
0: So my response to that would be that Passover initially was a moed of the home. It was a feast of salvation and deliverance from, of course, the death angel, and then became a national and corporate moed of then reconciliation to the nations because the nations then would be those that would not only in Israel but the sojourner also could come up to the three pilgrimage feasts and it would be part of that in gathering but also you have to leave Mitzrayim or the nations to be able to corporately gather in as Israel so well just a different (laughs) perspective yes
1: okay next question Only the males appearing before Yahuwah for the three pilgrimage feasts? Why is that? And what about females? Thank you.
0: Excellent. Well, of course, we understand in the Tanakh that is a patriarchal society. We understand through the revelation and the beauty of Yahusha that there is neither male or female, slave or free, but we are all one in Moshiach. So that is the glory that we have with Yahusha.
2: And you can tell me if I'm mistaken, but I'm believing that the um, the male was because th- that um, women were very much involved in the care and, you know, children, elderly folks, people that couldn't make it. So he didn't say, now you need to come to whenever you have these needs to take care of, your children, your nursing, your pregnant, whatever, come if you can, but it's not required for the daughters.
0: Yeah, again, which would line up with a patriarchal society where the women were very much within the home care and the development of that society, whereas the males would be the ones that would go forth representing the household. Yes, question.
1: Question: Could Matthew address the recent animal sacrifice in Israel?
0: Yes, I think I put a little post on Facebook. It was absolutely an abomination. Firstly and foremost, if you um, saw that online, um, you would just share that with me last night. That um, they got a what they would call a goy, a goyim, um, a a non-Jew to perform the sacrifice and of course that was because according to their understanding only the Goyim could do it on an altar outside the gates. Now I find it very interesting that it coincided with the Covenant calendar day of Yom Kippur Mm -hmm. and I find that that is just not a coincidence of course the synagogue of Satan knows what the true covenant calendar is as far as the covenant code Now, why is this happening in this day and age because we are moving moving closer to the ultimate abomination of desolation which is all going to be about the sacrificial blood of animals which is why this maokitzedek understanding this teaching today is so important and hebrews chapter nine and chapter ten clearly demonstrates to us the shift and the transference and the supremacy Mm -hmm. of the sacrifice and blood of Yahushua, which is truly our safety in a day of extreme wickedness and extreme confusion. It was so sad for me to see so many um, deceived Christian Zionists Um, and messianics that were all clapping and hurrah with, you know, the barbecue briquettes, the construction lumber, the hewn stones and the lighter fluid. I mean, it's outrageous. A desecration of all that is holy. It just shows you the agenda of the synagogue of Satan, and the Noahide laws that they are trying to push through. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so excited about Sukkot, though. I just really am. So anyway, sorry. Yes.
1: All right, next question. Are you still doing the teaching for the book of Revelation?
0: Am I still doing the teaching of the... Yes, I am. It is, it is a plan. Uh, it truly is a plan, Yes. I have been studying away, but it is not going to be in my timing. It is going to be fully in Yahweh's timing, and it is an overwhelming, overwhelming... I thought that teaching the 13 scrolls of Ezekiel was a tremendous undertaking. The book of Revelation, my goodness. But I'm so thankful for the training and preparation that Yahweh has for me. But I, I'm I'm doing my due diligence. But I have to wait until the ruach hakodesh sets me free to do that. And um, I really I really do. But yes, it is uh, my full intention. But I'm not going to date set. <laughs> so Hebrews seven eleven. Uh, I appreciate the clarification to make a distinction for Israel. Do you also possibly think? That that's why they said that the book of the law was a schoolmaster that would lead you to Messiah. I definitely do. That's exactly it. Um, the book of the law is the schoolmaster, and this is the thing that I I want to discuss briefly. Can, um, I think I I have good uh, good picture on the on the camera there, so I want to speak to the camera as well. You guys online that are still tuning in appreciate that is. Too many times people are not willing to take a stand. I'm one that takes a stand constantly because I want you to know where I stand. You make your own decisions. I have very little patience on the foxes that try to destroy the vines and the fruit because they, they have no names and they stand for nothing. I'd like to pose a question to you all in here and a question to you all out there that will help you identify those that are unwilling to take a stand. And the simple test is a Galatians test. In in fact, specifically in Galatians chapter 3, Paul identifies the book of the law by name you must take a stand. There are four options that are available to you. I want to know where you stand. Number one you can throw out the writings of Paul which will then lead to you throwing out the writings of Luke, the book of Acts, writings of Peter, writing of Revelation, And I count you no longer a brother or a sister. You are an apostate. That is your first option. It's a very bad option. But if you take that stand, then identify yourself. The second stance is a stance that I once took when I was a fellow at Calvary Chapel. And that the law that Paul was speaking about was the whole of the Old Testament law that it was done away with. And it made me a churchman. And if that's what you believe, then I know where you stand. That's your second option. Your third option is that you can say, like I also used to say in the Messianic movement, that Paul is juxtaposing the written law versus the oral law of the rabbis. And if that is your stance, then that makes you a Messianic Jew. And you're in Messianism then at least I know that I'm dealing with. And the fourth option is that, like Paul, you can identify it that this is Paul juxtaposing the book of the law, book of the covenant dichotomy. That the book of the law was added as a schoolmaster until the time of reformation when Messiah has come. But please take a stance because the foxes that go through the vine, they'll say, well, no, I'm not messianic. No, I don't believe in all the messianic stuff. Oh, but no, I do not believe in the Melchizedek teaching from Torah to the tribes. Oh, but no, I'm not a churchman. But no, I, 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 I believe that the New Testament is authoritative. You don't have that option. You fall nowhere. Take a stand and then we can identify what we're dealing with. But the little foxes that go between the vines, they have no name and they never take a stand. And you know what? I've called that out. And that has caused a great controversy and for that I unabashedly do not apologize. So if you've been hate watching me all the way to the end, you little fox, it's time to give us some thumbs down but for the rest of you give us some thumbs up hit the notification button and subscribe to our channel because it's always a blessing to be in the Ruach and driven into the inspired word of Yahuwah and we hope that you'll catch us and tune in we hope to be broadcasting live from the Feast of Tabernacles a city on a hill right here on Monday for a whole week and more at Sukkot, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, we'll catch you live during the festival. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. Amen.